impotency. 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 Sorry. Impotency. 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 I can't say it. <laughs> you could not get aroused. Impotency. Impotency. I can't say it. <laughs> I really can't say it. You guys know. <laughs> That's awesome. Hello. <laughs> Hi guys. What's going on? It's been a hot minute and uh and I'll tell you why. Because I ended up like in a procedure that Do you uh, really want to start that like it? Yeah, I mean they gotta know where we were. I mean, like we can think of like some it wasn't jazzy on intro. <laughs> I got attacked by a bear. <laughs> We have to we have to do like But not really. <laughs> yes. So I've been gone for a while. Yeah. I was recovering. I feel much better. Uh 20, it's, it's okay. It's fine. Twenty what a year. Yeah, what a year. It's been a year for everybody. Yes. For multiple reasons. Have we recorded in twenty twenty? We have, yeah, of course. Oh yeah, we have. Yeah. And see Josh and I are both considered, I guess, essential workers and so Air quotes. We're uh we're still working full time every day and working more now than we kind of have been in the yep. past. So yep. um, it's it's just been nuts. And then I had a procedure. I got another one coming up. Anyway, oh, it's fine. Oh, and so, riding and plagues. and Yes. All that good stuff. Desert storms that somehow make it across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And come all the way to the foothills of Kentucky. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there's the pitter-patter of little corgi feet coming in to say hello. Yeah. But, um, so we're back, and let me tell you how this came about. So, the other night, we were playing some board games with a friend. We had grilled out, had a nice afternoon, and we pulled out our copy of Snake Oil. Snake Oil is a great board game um, where you pretty much try to convince the other person to buy your miracle cure-all product. Right. Now, I don't know what you know about Snake Oil. But it was an actual thing that kind of went around for many, many years. Pretty much it was salesmen would bring this, this oil around. or it, it didn't have to particularly be an oil. It was a miracle product that was supposed to cure whatever ails you. Right. And so uh, that got didn't us... Matter, didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter what it was. Snake oil could cure what ails you. And... It just kind of got us interested in, well, if we, you know, tried to use cocaine in our medicine and we used heavy doses of mercury and opiates and medicine sort of has had a weird lot, like a weird start. It has. has. Weird starts. And so it got us thinking about medical oddities and weird cures that sort of thing, like weird medical treatments. I guess you could call it like medical, I don't know what you would well, call it. Not we, really oddities, and but... Fo- and we fooled around with it because like, given the current state of the world, <laughs> we're trying to find a, they're, they're rushing to try to find a cure for 
what's going on and stuff. And, and most of the stuff Tessa will be talking about, they were answers to the unknown. Okay, so here's here's a little bit about snake oil. So, 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. This man shows up dressed all to the nines in his fancy suit. He reaches into a sack that's at his feet, and what does he pull out? A rattlesnake. So, he takes the rattlesnake, and he shows its, you know, its big, writhing, venomous body. And then he takes a knife, and he slits the snake open, huh. right? And then... He takes the snake that he just slit, and he sticks it into a vat of boiling water, and the fat of the snake rises to the surface, so he skims it off and mixes it into this, like, liniment jar, and he sells it as snake oil liniment. Now, what was Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment supposed to cure? Well, just to name a few things... Rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, (laughs) contracted cords, toothaches, sprains, swellings, etc., frostbite, chill, bruises, sore throat, bites of animals, insects, and reptiles, good for man and beast. It gives immediate relief, is good for everything a liniment ought to be good for. That was Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. Then once that happened... More and more people started sort of jumping on to the wagon of the cure-all medicine. So anyway, we got interested in that. This episode was born from that interest. We started delving back into the past of medicine. And here's a couple of weird things that we thought you might enjoy. After being gone for so long, Mrs. Cottle, that was a good introduction. Thank you. So, for all of you vampire lovers out there who are eagerly awaiting the release of Stephanie Meyer's brand new book, Midnight oh, Sun, bull crap. Let's don't, talk a little bit about. That. Let's talk a little bit about blood. <laughs> Specifically, we're going to be talking about bloodletting. What do you know about bloodletting, Mister Cottle? Oh, I know all kinds of things about bloodletting. Oh well, I didn't expect you to say that. Oh, I expected you to be like, "Oh, geez, Mrs. Cottle, I don't know anything. Oh. Teach me a thing or two." Okay, uh, Miss Cottle, I don't know nothing about that. Please use your library uh, knowledge and teach me. Okay, well, let's travel all the way back to 1791. Have you ever heard? Oh, and let me go ahead and say, uh, before I go into my spiel about your knee. bloodletting and. All kinds of the this, this stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. All of our information from this episode Thank you. Uh, goes back to Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. This book is written by Lydia Kang, M.D., and Nate Peterson. So uh, we definitely got... Definitely not sponsored, but you definitely, definitely not sponsored. And you write an interesting book. Yeah, so. you, you wrote a fantastic book. We're really enjoying reading all kinds of weird medical knowledge from this. So again... Our episode today, we took a lot of our uh, information from Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything, thanks to Lydia Kang, MD, and Nate Peterson. Anyway, that's my spiel about that, and back to bloodletting. August of 1791, we have a 35-year-old man whom you may have heard of before. His name is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. <laughs> That's Beethoven. But That's that was close. definitely that the was, wrong person. But, but, you know, I appreciate the effort. Well, it was one of those things that when I, when I was doing it, but then when it came out, I was like, no. No. 
<laughs> Mozart, uh, the musical genius, had been suffering. He was losing weight. He was anemic. He had headaches. He would faint, have fainting spells. And uh, he, was, he became really paranoid that he was being poisoned. Weeks pass since his symptoms start. His condition worsens. So by November of that year, he can no longer leave bed. He vomits, he has diarrhea, he has arthritis, his hands and his feet are swelling till they almost split. It's pretty much impossible for him to continue composing, and by this point, he's convinced that he's being poisoned. So, his doctors try to save him by using one of the most popular treatments of the Tom, and that was bloodletting. Right. Unfortunately, some people estimate that they... Before you, before, you go, before you go on, I might want to interject at this point that some of the things that you'll be talking about and what I'll definitely be talking about, it's kind of gruesome. So, <laughs> Viewer discretion is advised. Proceed wait, with wait, wait, wait. Not viewer, listener discretion listener is advised. Listener discretion is advised. Proceed with caution. And go. Okay, so they used bloodletting. Some people estimate that he could have lost around four pints of blood in his last week of life. So his sister-in-law said they bled him and applied cold compresses to his head, whereupon his forces visibly forsook him and he lost consciousness, which he never recovered. So he died 24 hours after, and they buried him in an unmarked grave. It's believed that all of the bloodletting, instead of helping Mozart, well, it just made him super anemic and probably contributed to his death, though we'll never know because huh. there was no autopsy. I just definitely learned something. What? I didn't realize that he was buried in an unmarked grave. He is. And bloodletting was... It's probably, I would assume it's marked I'm now, but I don't know. Now. So we go back in history and we see people like Mozart. that They used bloodletting on a lot of people. He was one of the unfortunate people that they happened to use this upon that it went a little bit too far and likely ended up contributing to his death so if you can imagine let's travel back in time and you go to a clinic the smell of iron is just everywhere in the air and you hear like the sticky dripping of blood that goes they had special collecting bowls made specifically for the blood letting process that had like a little dip or a notch in it that would hold your limp arm so if you can imagine all of this you would go and they would use one of several tools to aid in the bloodletting process and then you would just kind of sit there and let it go and supposedly according to physicians it would pretty much cure what ails you no matter what that ailment was it was usually done In a reasonable fashion, like no young children, no very, very old people. And they tried not to remove excessive amounts. So what particularly did they think that they were doing? Well, at the time that they started using bloodletting, it goes all the way back to about 1500 BC. So a long, long, long Long time time ago. ago, the ancient Romans thought that when a woman would have her menstrual cycle, that it was like the body's natural way of removing toxins. So, in their minds, removing some of the blood was a good thing. It was a healthy thing. When they started doing uh, the bloodletting, like in the Han Dynasty, which was 206 BC, so way, way long ago, they did bloodletting then. They didn't know that the blood circulated through the body. They thought that it just sat in the body and that it could become stagnant so they were removing the decayed 
blood, the old <clears throat> blood, right. to make room for the new. And, what that, did and, they, that, and that's kind of mind-blowing to think because 1791 is when Mozart... 1791. All right. To think that medical science has only progressed so far in 300. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, has progressed as much as it has. Right. And it's kind of weird that I figured by at least 1791, the circulatory system, I need to, I need to look that up. I'm not sure when it was that they discovered that blood circulates through the body. Mm -hmm. But have you ever heard of my, my man, Hippocrates? Hippocrates. <laughs> Hippocrates had uh, what he, they called four humors. So... To cure yourself, if you had too much blood, you needed to get rid of the blood. If you had too much phlegm, you needed to get rid of the phlegm. If you had too much yellow or black bile, you needed to get rid of the yellow or black bile. You would purge either by bleeding, vomiting, or clearing your bowels. So it's not like this was uh, a sudden concept. It's been documented throughout history that people used bloodletting. You know, ironically, they used to use it for a lot of things, including hemorrhage so think about that in order to keep yourself from hemorrhaging <laughs> they would just use bloodletting and make you bleed more but hopefully yeah. hopefully it worked out right <laughs> so. okay okay uh to, to interject here so it is kind of mind-blowing that in 1791 they were still doing bloodletting in the 1500s is when pulmonary circulation was discovered 1500s yeah wow by real doe colombo 1550, he, he was born in 1515 and died in 1559. And he was the first to confirm on a vivisection the heart's four-valve system. Permitted flow of blood in one direction only, from the right ventricle to the lungs, back to the left ventricle, and from there to the aorta. But yeah, so they use this for a lot of things. Did you have headaches? Bloodletting. Bloodletting. Did you have an irregular menstrual cycle? Bloodletting. Bloodletting. Did you have a bad tummy ache? Bloodletting. So what did they use for bloodletting? Well, there were a couple of different tools of the trade. And, you know, they're not terrible looking. Like, this one thing that we're going to talk about is called a scarificator. It's a little sketch looking, but you, they could, you could pretty much use anything for bloodletting. In the past, they used, you know, animal teeth, stones, pieces of sharpened wood, quills, shells. But the process evolved, and so did the tools. By the 17th century, they had this procedure down to a science. So, first they would apply the tourniquet to the upper arm, and then the vein would be slid open, and they used several different things for that. They could use the lancet, which uh, was like a curved pointed blade, and it had a handle. You know, like in modern day, diabetics use lancets to uh, pierce their fingers or whatever to take their blood sugar, so... The name sort of stuck. They even had thumb lancets, which were pocket-sized little fold-up, just-carry-it-with-you-in-your-pocket tools Jesus. to bloodlet yourself on the go. Then you had a fleam. It was like this multi-bladed little contraption that would make larger cuts, and it would be used sometimes for even bleeding animals, like large animals like cattle or horses. They would use the fleam for that. It looks a little wicked. And then you had the scarificator. The scarificator was like this little metal box. And all of these, gosh, ten little blades, let's say, that stick out of the bottom of the box. They were spring-loaded. And you would push yep. the button, and they would simultaneously draw themselves in a flash across your flesh and open you up to bleed you. You know what? I'll post a picture of it. It's pretty interesting looking. Right. 
because it would definitely make like one this one this one that I'm seeing would make 10 cuts on you instead of the standard one but they had it down to a science, spring-loaded bloodletting right, tools. Right, and they used those all the way up until... Well, and in some cases, they still do bloodletting, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, like, when you go for medical procedures and say that you have trouble coagulating, like some people that we know that are sitting across the table from me, say that you have a factor eight deficiency, say that you have hemophilia. <laughs> Guilty. If they need to test your bleeding time, sometimes they'll... Use something maybe a little similar to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, most hospitals don't now. It's like yeah. all in the lab. Because I remember your grandfather said that that's what they used. They used to use, yeah. When he was a phlebotomist, they would use the scarificator for, um, yeah. to take what they call the bleeding, bleeding time, time test. Yeah. Let, me, uh, let me lay some knowledge on you. Do you know where the, uh, the barber pole came from? No. If you do, pretend like you don't. <laughs> But do you know where it came from? No. The barber pole? No, I don't. Okay. So, in ancient Rome, there were these very talented individuals who were uh, known as tonsures. They were responsible for cutting hair and trimming your nails and your calluses. Uh, they would make you look so good. But you know what else they would do? They would pull your teeth if you had bad teeth. And they would... Uh, sometimes practice minor surgeries and bloodletting. So it was like you were going to the barber, you were getting your hair cut and getting a manicure and getting a tooth pulled and getting your blood led at the same time. So glad that this you need a limb cut off, just go to the barber shop, right? Right. So in, let's fast forward, in medieval Europe, the barber was usually... Most often, a surgeon also, so the barber surgeon. And that became the go-to person for uh, your cosmetic services, but say that you needed your leg cut off. They could perform the amputation right there in the shop. Maybe you needed some leeches put on you so you could, you know, have them suck out your blood. Maybe you had smallpox and you needed to have somebody bleed it away from you because, of course, they thought bloodletting could cure epilepsy, smallpox, fatigue, whatever. The barbers would do all of this in their shop. You know, initially when they started doing bloodletting, it was often done by like the clergy. Monks would practice bloodletting. Do you know why? Because monks and clerics were celibate, right? And so they thought that bloodletting seemed to tame down their um, drives. Easy. Easy. <laughs> their uh, drives. Easy, family-friendly show. And then in 1163, Pope Alexander III forbade the clergy from practicing this. And so then after that, it kind of fell to the, the barber's surgeon people right. to do this. Anyway, right. so the reason we have a barber pole. The blood letter, barber, blood letter, whatever, when they would let your, like when they would take your blood out, right, when they would cut you, they would catch it in a bowl, then they would smell it, touch it, and taste it. They always did those things to sort of diagnose what it was that was wrong with you. They believed that they could do that. And because barbers wanted to lure people into their shops, they would place all these bowls on their windowsills full of everybody's blood till it became illegal for them to keep them there and they had to pitch them out instead. After this happened and they wanted to advertise their service, 
they would put poles outside of their place of work to advertise their vocation. So the pole, where it's long, it symbolizes the stick that a patient would squeeze or get to uh, facilitate the bloodletting process. So you had a thing, you would squeeze it, your blood would come out. And most barber poles have like a little bowl shape sort of thing at the bottom. What? So that symbolizes the, the bowl at the bottom to catch your blood. The white stripe, some say, symbolizes the tourniquet. The blue represents the vein and the red represents the blood. They believed that bloodletting could cure um, a broken heart. So if you're, you know your significant other broke up with you, just go and get a pint of your blood taken out. Right. So you don't have blood in your heart to pump. So right. you don't have a broken right. heart. It would cure melancholy, mania. I mean, they thought that that bloodletting would cure insanity, that it would cure manic depression, that it would cure foolishness. I mean, there were instances when pretty much people were getting were were being bled for pretty much everything. In the 18th century, so there was St. Mary of Bethlehem in London. It was a psychiatric hospital. Right. It was uh, nicknamed Bedlam for all of the horrific patient behaviors, the conditions, the treatments that were found. So the common prescriptions of um, a Bethlehem medical doctor were a purge and a vomit, then a vomit and a purge and a bleeding. That's what they would do. So they would make you puke. They would Extra. they would make you lose your bowels, and then they would bleed you. It was like they were trying to purge everything that they could from your body, thinking that it was gonna that it was gonna help you. That's wild. So Benjamin Rush, a physician and a founding father, this book says, recommended heroic depletion therapy. So bloodletting for many ailments, including this prescription for mania. This is his actual prescription for mania. So if you felt a little manic, here's what you would do. 20 to 40 ounces of blood, which is two and a half pints, may be taken at once. Early and copious bleeding are wonderful in calming people. Because it's killing them! (laughs) Yeah, so... So... Did you know that Marie Antoinette was bled after she gave birth to her uh, to her baby in a room full of courtly observers? Because back then you did not give birth by yourself. You had an entourage and an audience. So as soon as they took the baby out, she fainted. And in order to revive her, they just, you know, cut her open and took well, more One blood. of them anemic? Wasn't she like a hemophiliac or something? I, I don't think hemo- she was. I don't think she baby. had hemophilia, but Charles II of England was having fits while he shaved. They bled copious amounts from him again and again and again and again. And uh, at the end of everything, he was pretty much bloodless by the time that he died. But I mean, like, you know, obviously it works, right? Okay, so then 30 years later, Charles II's niece, Queen Anne, who was on the throne at that point in life, was bled and purged after having fits and falling unconscious. She survived two days after the doctors arrived. They bled her dry. And then Lord Byron, famous poet Lord Byron, had a cold, just a cold. He had fevers and body aches. And he told his physicians he did not want to be bled. They did not listen to him, and over and over and over they nagged him that if he would just let them do bloodletting, he would be totally fine. And after a while, he relented and said, 
Come as you are, I see a damned set of butchers. Take away as much blood as you <laughs> will, but have done with it. So they bled him several pints over the course of three bleedings. And, uh, surprise, surprise, he got worse. Can you imagine? Could you imagine? He got worse. So they were pretty much desperate. They also practiced this thing back in this time called blistering, where they would pretty much burn you till you blistered on purpose, but we're not going to get into that. But they blistered him and then applied leeches around his ears. He died very soon after, but the physicians blamed him for putting off the bleeding for too long. And then one more historic person that went through the bloodletting process was George Washington. Did you know this? I didn't know this. George Washington. He retired from his presidency. Three years afterwards, he came down with a fever after he was riding in snowy weather. So he had trouble breathing. He had a fever. He had chills and body aches. (laughs) He probably had a cold. (laughs) Right? The physicians aggressively bled him. They took several pints of his blood. They tried to force him to drink molasses, vinegar, and butter in combination, which pretty much choked him almost to death. They blistered him. Then they bled him again. They tried laxatives. They bled him some more. And a day later, he was bled again. After it all, he probably was bled between five to nine pints of blood. That's insane. And he died shortly after. Right. From a cold. He had a cold, and they bled him pretty much dry of all of his blood. Uh, Another gruesome fact that I just found, uh, talking about the circulatory system and how blood works, a Greek physician by the name of Galen was born on September 9th, AD 129, in Paragon, Greece. He discovered, apparently he is the one that is uh, given credit for discovering the pulmonary circulation, because in 157 AD, at the age of 28, he was the chief physician of gladiators in Paragon, where he watched the still-beating hearts of fighters who lay dead when their chest was ripped open by their opponent's blade. Later, when he moved to Rome, he carried out vivisections on monkeys and pigs and again observed the pulmonary circulation. But he erroneously thought that the arterial blood originated in the heart and venous blood in the liver, and that the liver plumped blood to the rest of the body where it was consumed. Right. So they believed that the, the body consumed blood. So you want to know a little bit more about blood? Just a couple of more different facts about blood? Going back to the vampire thing here... <laughs> Uh, people used to use blood for medicine, for cures. Um, back in the Roman gladiator days, the blood of gladiators was drunk by epileptics, sort of as a, an attempt to cure epilepsy. Why? <sighs> Nobody really knows. One scholar apparently insisted it works because I heard it works, and then the people believed it. Blood was used for a lot of things, as was human flesh, Fat from the human body. Right. Every When they would hang people, for example, they used to take the fat from the body and make something called hangman's grease, which was used for a variety of different cures. But let me tell you about this, because it has a full-on recipe. <laughs> Blood was sometimes dried and ground up to a powder. It was mixed into food. It was made into ointments. It was even snorted. Like Wow. Snorted. Blood. (laughs) Through the nostrils. Italian doctor Leonardo Fioravante thought that blood products could 
as good as raise the dead. Well, he died in 1588, so obviously it didn't work. Right. But anyway, there was a, uh, a cure-all that went around for a while that when you would swell, you could bathe in human blood, and it would you know make your swelling go down. There was blood used for skin infections, fever to make your hair grow. Sometimes people would even, this is so gross, they would take blood and they would cook it down and make it into jam and, like, eat it <laughs> on toast or scones. You want to know how to make it? Well, let me tell you. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> you take the blood... And you dry it until... Yeah, it, guys, don't do this. You take the blood and you dry it till it gets sticky. And then you cut it into thin slices and let the watery part drip away. You stir it into a batter on the stove with a knife and pound it through a sieve of the finest silk and then you seal it in a jar. All right. <laughs> Discretion. Oh. We are not responsible for some dumbass that decides to do this. <laughs> Sorry that I said a bad word, but... <laughs> and they tell you... Who the best person is to get blood from for this process. You want to guess? I know it won't be Professor Alice because there's too much fat there. <laughs> they tell you to get blood from a person with a blotchy red complexion and red-headed victim's bloods was particularly sought after. So, don't come at me. I mean, like, I'm a redhead, but don't come at me. <laughs> Actually, red-headed people, if you go through this chapter, which is called Cannibalism and Corpse Medicine, it tells you about other stuff that they particularly wanted to use redheads for, but we're not going to get into that. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my spiel on bloodletting. I thought it was pretty interesting. Hopefully you did too. History of the circulatory system. Yeah, history of the circulatory, uh, discovery well, of the circulatory which I, system. Which, which I have a little bit more info right here. Yeah, lay it on me. A 16-year-old genius by the name of William Harvey was born on April 1st, 1578. He was awarded a scholarship to Cambridge University. Harvey performed vivisections on dogs and invited fellows of the Royal College of Physicians of London to come and verify his findings. He estimated that the capacity of the heart was 43 grams, that about 6 grams of blood went through the heart every time it pumped, and that the heart beats 1,000 times every half hour. This means that it pumps about 5 kilograms of blood in a half hour or, or about 245 kilograms in a day. And this proved the age-old theory that the body consumed blood was incorrect. He was also the one that proved that blood flows in two separate loops, the pulmonary circulation and the systematic circulation. Oh, very cool. So, yeah, that is pretty cool. We learning about blood. We learning all kinds about blood. Yeah. So, no wonder... You gotta have it. I mean, you yeah. know... And so, no wonder during those times that rumors of vampires, oh yeah, absolutely, fears of this of, of stuff like that circulated. No pun intended. Circulated <laughs> so, so so well. I'm going to pass it on over to Josh, and he's going to tell us a couple of things about another cure all. So this fascinated me last month. Month before that, I can't remember because um, History Channel was doing a special on the Radium Girls. And if you've never heard about the radium girls, that's kind of what I'm going to talk about tonight. And radium, believe it or not, was a very big part of the early 20th, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. Amazing cure-alls, believe it or not. If you don't know what radium is. And I'm getting ready, I'm getting ready to explain okay. what radium is. Because you cannot talk about radium without talking about one of the famous women in history, Marie Curie. Famous scientist. Famous scientist uh, who was a very intelligent woman and her husband as well. They ultimately gave their life for their experiments because 
of what they were doing, especially Marie Curie when she discovered radium. And the medical community embraced everything that she had to tell about it. Before the dangers of radium was fully understood, it enjoyed a brief life as a celebrity cure-all. In 1902, the Curies first isolated radium chloride from an uranium-rich mineral in ore now called uranite. And how radium was discovered was as uranium, as rich uranium starts to decompose, it transforms into other elements. Radium is just a stop on the way of one-way decomposition of the half-life of uranium. So you have to catch it at the exact You have to catch it at the exact moment. bright moment as in the uranium. In order for it to be radium. For the, in order for it to be radium. The new element when she discovered she called My Beautiful Radium. It glowed with a radioactivity and medical promises. Radium had a half-life of 1,600 years and had a radioactivity level about 3,000 times that of uranium. It was enormously rare and enormously intriguing and also enormously dangerous. But they didn't know that at the time. They didn't know that at the time. Less than a year later, while commenting on radium's ability to cause deep flesh burns, Pierre Curie suggested that it might have potential to cure cancer, to treat cancer. Initial results were very promising, particularly with skin cancer. And uh, the next year, 1904, saw John McLeod, a physician at Charing Cross Hospital in London, develop radium applicators for treatment of eternal cancer as well, which they discovered shrank tumors. Which was a big thing because, you know, for centuries people were losing the battle against cancer. Right. So now they had a new ally in the fight. And it even glowed, <laughs> says the book. <laughs> and it even glowed. So did it even glow. Some would even say it glowed. All of the other so, elements. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was no surprise that in addition to treating cancer, physicians in the early 20th century experimented with using radium for hypertension. Mm-hmm. Diabetes, arthritis, rheumatism, gout, and tuberculosis. Oh, wow. So, uh, a yep. lot of things. And despite the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, radium remained entirely unregulated because it was classified as a natural ailment. There was no reason to regulate it because it, it was in nature. Nature can be deceiving. Yep. <laughs> so, what did that do in the United States during the 19th century? What do you think happened? They used it for everything. They exploited it. Oh, yeah. They used it for everything. Just like they do everything else. Just like when cocaine came out and they were like, put it in soft drinks. Yep. Advertisements sprang up in the thousands. And almost every newspaper article in the country at that time had stuff talking about radium. Quacks, a.k.a. snake oil salesmen, started exploiting radiant youth and beauty. Radium is restoring health to thousands, and remarkable new radium cream liniment drives out pains from aching joints and muscles instantly. Oh, come spread this on your skin and you'll yes, be beautiful come again. come spreading the only saving grace why millions of people didn't die <laughs> from radium poisoning was that it was extremely expensive mm-hmm. because it was extremely rare element to Yeah, obtained. As a result, the vast majority of radioactive products peddled by quacks from the United States did not actually contain any radioactive ingredients at all. Because of the supply and demand process, it undoubtedly saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. Mm -hmm. And this is where the viewer discretion comes in at, because I'm going to talk about Eben Byers. He was a 47-year-old industrial socialite and a very 
big ladies man. Ooh. To the point that he could be considered a whoremonger. <laughs> he was in his private train. Don't take that word and use it, kids. <laughs> yes, don't take that. Yeah. Don't at me, please. But he was in his private room on a train when he fell over and hurt his arm. But his arm had already been injured because he was a golf champion. He was one of Yale University's biggest golf champions. And he had injured his arm, but it was a recurring injury. When the pain seemed to last for several days, he evolved his doctor. And his doctor said, in a nutshell, Hey, there's this new thing called Radiothorn that you need to take for your injury and so mr byers bought into this and because he was a ladies man and so he needed his strength mm-hmm. he needed his strength he needed his strength. He needed that strength because the injury dampened his raging libido so he needed to be able to he was desperate for <laughs> he was desperate for a solution the new manufacturer by the name of bailey radium laboratory in new jersey had just created and patented this Radiothor. Each bottle of Radiothor was guaranteed to contain two microcuries of radium, the new widely advertised as cure-all for some. 150 maladies, including everything that I said before, high blood pressure and impotency. Impotency. Impotency, sorry. Impotency. 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 I can't say it! (laughs) You could not get aroused. (laughs) Impotency. Impotency. I can't say it. I really can't say it. You guys know. You know. But, as greed would have it... That's the intro. (laughs) But, as greed would have it, it didn't hurt much that Mr. Byers' doctor was getting a 17% kickback from the manufacturer Mm -hmm. for every description of Radiothor that he was peddling. Byers began taking the medicine and when his arm pain improved he became convinced that Radiothor had increased his vitality. As every good smart American would do he began drinking three times the amount of bottles that it was prescribed to him. Jesus. Three times the recommended daily amount. It was a luxury unique to his financial situation because the average person could not afford it. So not only was he using it for health but he was using it as a hey I'm richer than you thing. By 1931, the industrialists had built up a radiation dosage level equivalent to receiving several thousand dosage of x-rays. That's not good. (laughs) That's just not good. (laughs) And the author of the book clearly states this. He says, unfortunately for buyers, this level of radiation did not turn him into a Marvel superhero. It slowly and gruesomely killed him. What happened to him exactly? Catch this. By the end of 1927, he was routinely drinking several bottles of Radiothor each day. He was convinced that it improved his health. When, in actuality... It was killing him. It was killing him. Over the next five years, Byers consumed an astonishing 1,500 bottles of Radiothor. And by 1931, his body was literally destroying itself from the inside out. The last 18 months of his life were straight out of a horror film. I'm ready. So when the, on when ready. the once strong and robust lady killer, ladies man, <laughs> lady killer, he was he was a ladies man. He died from multiple radiation based cancers raging through his body. March thirty first, nineteen thirty two. He weighed a scant ninety two pounds. His kidneys had completely failed, leaving his skin sunken. His brain had abscessed rendering him nearly mute but entirely lucid. Most of his jaw had been removed by surgeons in failed attempts to stop the spread of cancer, and his skull was riddled with holes from the radiation. I wonder if there's pictures of this dude. There is. 
A forensic investigation upon Byers' death revealed that even his own bones were dangerously radioactive. The playboy literally had to be buried in a lead-lined coffin. I'm looking at a picture of Eben Byers. I am not posting it on our Instagram because it's too disturbing to me. But if you want to go look for it, you know you can find it. Yes, you can find it. A good thing came of Byers' death. The FDA investigation into Radiothor, the Federal Trade Commission ordered a cease and desist order halting its production. So every bottle then available around the stores of the country was removed and government pamphlets were distributed nationally warning of the dangers of consuming the product. To get back on track of what I was originally, I figured that was a really interesting story it for was. today. Tell us, but tell us about the Radium so, yeah, Girls. To get back on to the Radium Girls, it really is a tragic tale. Go back to the early 1900s. You know, America is prospering after the Civil War, and we've entered a, a sort of golden age, I guess you want to call it. But just like anything else, comes to the halts, and World War One begins. There was a huge problem with communication, especially at nighttime. You know, if you was ordered to attack at this certain time of day, or this certain time of morning, you would have to literally light a candle or light at something, giving away your position to check your watch. So the answer to this was radium. Watch manufacturers literally started painting the dials on the watch and the numbers on the watch with radium. Because so, it would glow. Because it would glow at night. There was three major radium factories. The biggest one was in Orange, New Jersey, beginning around 1970. One in Ottawa, Illinois, which began in the 1920s. And the third factory in Waterbury, Connecticut. And... The majority of the 4,000 individuals employed to these factories were women because it had nothing to do with sexism. It was the availability because most of the men were off fighting the war. These women, from the very beginning, were told that what they were getting ready to do was safe. Right off the bat, they were lied to, even though their supervisors and the people that were watching over them were behind thick glass walls, were protected from head to toe in radiation suits and whatnot. It was still safe for them to do, right? right? Okay. So because it took so much material to make paintbrushes back then, and because of scarce of the materials being sent for the war effort, they were told that instead of wiping their brushes off, they had to use their mouth to make the point of the brush. So that way, basically, they were recycling their brushes. The so, girls were instructed to slip the paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point. So to make a fine point. To make matters even worse, when the girls realized that, hey, this substance is glowing, they would not only paint their faces with it, but they would also paint their nails, and they would paint each other. they paint their teeth. And just because it was cool that your teeth and stuff was... Glowing. You were literally glowing. Yeah. Let's go dance in the dance hall because nobody could take their eyes off of you. Yes. Because you were glowing. And then later, when women started getting sick, a lot of the women started suffering from bone fractures, necrosis of the jaw, anemia, and a condition known as radium jaw. It is thought that the x-ray machines used by medical investigators may have contributed some of the sickness, sickened workers' ill health by subjugating them to additional radiation. So when they went to go seek help, they were being exposed to more radiation. Right. Radium jaw. You would get a bad toothache. They would pull that tooth. And yes. then the next one would hurt. They would pull they that. Would pull that and tooth. And eventually they would pull all of your all teeth. All your teeth. Because the radium was making the teeth fall out. what made this story so tragic is that nobody believed them. When the women went to go seek help, they were called 
Bad names because basically what radium exhibited was in the early in the early stages was symptoms of syphilis. So the women were being turned away. STDs. STDs. This lady named Molly in 1922, she had lost most of her teeth and had a mysterious infection that spread to her entire lower jaw and the roof of her mouth. And even some of the bones of her ears were said to be, quote, one large abscess. But her dentist prodded delicately at her jawbone, and to his horror, it literally snapped against his fingers. And he just removed it, not by, quote, not by operation, but by merely putting his fingers in her mouth and lifting it out. Right. Only days later, the entire lower jaw was removed in the same way. Right. And she was not the only one that was exhibiting these symptoms. She was not, no. So these women were going through a disinformation campaign, is what history calls it. And eventually they got their days in court, and what helped push that along was the inventor of the radium dial paint, Dr. Sabin A. Von Soecki. He died in 1928, becoming the 16th known victim of poisoning by radium dial paint. It helped the girl's case because he died of radium through his hands, not his mouth. And this helped the girls when they were suing the watchmaker company. Eventually... It was only when the first male employee of the radium firm died that experts finally decided decided to look into the cases. Poor Molly. We talked about how her jaw just disintegrated. But do you know how she actually died? The radium made her have an infection... It ate its way through her jugular vein. And so on September 12th, 1922, her mouth all of a sudden flooded with blood because she started hemorrhaging. And she hemorrhaged so fast that she choked on her own blood and she died. And the doctors on her death certificate put it down as she died of... Syphilis. Syphilis. When the first male employee died, experts finally took up the charge. And so in 1925, a doctor named Harrison Martland devised a bunch of tests to run that proved once and for all that radium had done it. And like, even the company went as far as they replaced the camel hair brushes that the girls was using with glass pens. But it slowed the girls down because the girls were getting paid by the piece. So every piece that they finished, they got a certain amount. So they went back to using the brushes. And the company tried to intervene and say, hey, we're here to help. What was the historical impact on this? Workers' rights. Workers' rights. The health and physics and the labor rights movement. The rights of an individual worker to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse was established as a result of the radium girls. The case was settled in the autumn of 1928, and each of the radium girls was rewarded $10,000, which is equivalent to $149,000 in 2019, and a $600 per year annuity. It's one of the first cases in history in which an employer was made responsible for the health of a company's right. employees. Plus $12 a week, equivalent to $200 in 2019 for all their lives while they lived, and all medical legal expenses incurred would also be paid by the company. So, like we said, it was a factor in establishing an occupational disease labor law. Before OSHA was set up, 14,000 people died on the job every year, and today, just over 4,500. So it reduced that number by almost 10,000 annual deaths. Well, radium paint was still used in the dials as late as 1960. The scientific impact, a scientist by the name of Robley D. Evans made the first measurement of exhaled radon and radium exertions from a former dial painter in 1933. 
At MIT, he gathered dependable body count measurements from 27 dial painters. This information was used in 1941 to establish the tolerance level for radium. So even though it was absolutely horrible, in the end of it all, their deaths were not meaningless. I mean, it's terrible, It's but yeah. good things came about through their sacrifice. And the last radium girl died 2014 it's a very interesting story very sad story it is a very sad story because these ladies were not believed at all and i'm gonna tell you another sad story do you know that i feel a little bit closer to god right now what (laughs) exactly i feel flat out holy yeah i'm gonna talk about lobotomies holy i mean that was the worst dad joke i've ever heard in my life (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty interesting A lot of people don't know about Rosemary Kennedy. I knew that there was something that had happened in the Kennedy family. It was like a a tragedy, whatever. Pretty much the entire Kennedy family is a tragedy. It is considered kind of like the dark secret of the Kennedy family. So let me tell you about Rosemary. If you're unfamiliar with who the Kennedys are. If you've been living under a rock the past. (laughs) Well, not all of our listeners are American. The Kennedys were pretty much considered like America's royal family. <laughs> they were Still handsome, are. they were beautiful, well-bred, well-connected, lots of money, good pedigrees, smart, political ties. And then we had President John F. Kennedy. And potential. And we had a potential president and his brother, Robert Kennedy. For decades, they've been kind of in the public eye. As far as the family goes, John and Robert had a sister, which they had several sisters. I think Kathleen... Rose and Rosemary. She was in public appearance as far up as 1938, Rosemary was. She appeared at King George and Queen Elizabeth's court. She was smiling and she looked beautiful in her perfectly fixed hair and her gloves and her couture gown. But then she no longer appeared in the public eye. It was just like she sort of took a back seat and then nobody saw her altogether. He had one, two, three, four, five, plus two brothers. So five sisters, two brothers in the Kennedy family. When Rosemary was born, her birth was delayed. So the baby was crowning, but the doctor was not there. And the nurse told her mother to hold her legs closed until the doctor could arrive, but it took him two hours. So Rosemary sat in the birth canal for two hours, and she could have come out. And so lack of oxygen, people kind of blame this now for her mental deficiencies. She sort of was at the level of a fourth grader in her 20s. She wrote with simplistic handwriting. She had spelling errors, you know. And the Kennedys were this perfect family. Even when she appeared in public, her father, Joe Kennedy, who was an ambassador to England, you could see him sort of grasping her arm to sort of lead her in the right direction or keep her behavior in check. In her early 20s, she basically got all of the cognitive gains that she could from tutoring But no matter what, even that was slowly slipping away. Sometimes she would escape from her her boarding school and wander the streets at night. She would have outbursts of emotion. She'd yell and punch. And she was becoming very difficult to handle. She was just, she was mentally ill. But they didn't really understand mental illness the way that we do Now, so in the 30s when this happened, they really didn't understand mental illness then. This would have been way before Kennedy was president, so in in the 1930s. They didn't really understand mental illness. And she was this elite girl from this socially active Boston family. 
having someone like Rosemary would have been considered disgraceful. Right. And so uh, it comes on the scene, this cure-all thing called the lobotomy. They read a Saturday Evening Post article that claimed it could help patients who were problems to their families and nuisances to themselves. So the father, Joe Kennedy, calls up Walter Freeman. And uh, in November of 1941, Rosemary was lobotomized. And all of a sudden, she disappeared from public eye entirely. To kind of understand what happened to her, let's talk a little bit about the lobotomy. It goes all the way back, really, to the ancient days. People were doing something called trepanning, which was where you would take a circular instrument and you would drill a hole into the top of the head, remove part of the skull. Supposedly, it was to relieve pressure from the brain. Obviously, it was very dangerous, especially in, in times like in the Renaissance period when we didn't have antiseptics and everything like we do now. Actually, trepanning still happens it does. nowadays. If you have a traumatic brain injury, if you have major swelling on your brain, but it sort of goes all the way back to trepanning, which was mentioned all the way back from ancient Greece. So it's not a new concept. As far as the lobotomy as we know it, trepanning is creating a hole in the skull. A lobotomy involves going in and manipulating the brain, in in a sense. And they used things like trepanning and lobotomy for a lot of things. Like this 12th century Greek surgeon recommended trepanning if you had melancholy or if you had <laughs> madness. Here we go with the list of nonsense. <laughs> a, 13th Greek, a 13th century Greek surgical text recommends if you have epileptic fits, go and have a trepanning. The humors and the air may go out and evaporate from your brain and you'll be cured. It's like letting the air out of a balloon. Oh, you know what else can be taken away with trepanning? Demons. <laughs> if you oh, had so dramatic. If you had demons, then they could remove it with trepanning. They'd cut right in there and tell them to skedaddle right out of your brain. It was pretty much a cure-all, like we talked about with bloodletting. So just a little bit more involved. Lobotomies as we have seen them today, everybody's seen like, oh my gosh, the ice pick lobotomy. Well, we're going to get to that. So here's how the lobotomy used to work. Let's talk about this Swiss doctor whose name that I'm going to butcher, but it's okay. His name is Gottlieb Burkhardt. Huh, he, he sliced into six different brains in the year of 1888 with no surgical experience whatsoever. <laughs> Burkhardt operated on patients with schizophrenia and psychotic hallucinations. He would, uh, like the ancient doctors of yore, he used a trephanine, so like a round sort of cookie cutter thing we talked about that was actually a bone saw. And he would drill holes near the temples. But here is where things got a little different with old Dr. Burkhart. He would cut through the brain's dura matter and he would scoop out parts of the cerebral cortex with like a spoon. He would just, you know, spoon out the brains, spoonfuls of brains. And some of the patients became quote unquote quieter, <laughs> as you as you would, I assume. Some of them no longer hallucinated. Uh, some of them had major, major, major neurological problems, and some of them died. <laughs> some of them committed suicide because they couldn't stand themselves anymore. 
So a, a psychiatrist at the time commented that Burkhart suggested that restless patients could be pacified by scratching away at the cerebral cortex. His procedure was really the first lobotomy, though that term actually wouldn't be coined until much later. From him, it grew. Surgeons would use a whole plethora of different tools to perform a lobotomy. Ice picks, these things like little melon ballers or uh, egg beaters, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. The lobotomy in the early 30s and 40s, physicians in the U.S. were absolutely desperate because we had so many people that were institutionalized for mental illness. We had a ton of mentally ill patients, more than 400 thousand mentally ill patients were in were institutionalized the psychiatric patients took up more than half of the hospital beds across the country that's a lot of mentally ill people they were desperate there were no pharmacological treatments that worked the patients were an enormous burden emotionally physically financially on their families and the asylums and so patients were treated in often absolutely horrific conditions because they were guinea pigs for trying to figure out how to fix it, you know? Mm -hmm. For example, a gout-ridden Portuguese neuroscientist with a syringe full of booze appears on the scene. His name is Igos Moniz, and he comes up and basically says, let's do a leucotomy, which is Greek for cutting the what, as in the what matter of the brain. So they would go in, drill a hole near the top of the brain, and you remember the syringe full of booze? They yeah. would inject pure ethanol into your cranial cavity, yeah. So, and it would kill parts of your frontal lobe. That's what they would do early on as the predecessor to the actual lobotomy. Did it work? Well, he was given a Nobel Prize for his work, despite the fact that many of his patients either died or ended right back up in the asylum. But what he would do is he would shoot the ethanol onto the brain. It would pretty much kill the part. And then he would take this thing. It was a nifty metal rod. He'd push it into your squishy brain parts. And it had this loop that would shoot out made of wire. And it would scoop around the part they wanted to remove like a melon baller. And they would pull, like, a little cantaloupe ball of your brain out through the hole. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not, it should disturb me, but, like, at the same time, it's like, why the hell did you think that this yeah. would work? So, Moniz, he spread the word about these treatments, and one of the men that listened and thought that it was just fantastic was Walter Freeman, who would eventually end up lobotomizing Rosemary Kennedy. Just a spoiler alert for later on, Rosemary Kennedy did not do well with the lobotomy. In 1936, the first patient actually survived and seemed cured. She had anxiety. It was diminished. She was still, quote, shrewish and demanding with her husband, but you know what? They took what they could get. And so together they sit along this campaign that would be Freeman and his partner, James Watts. They started doing operations and they soon became full-on celebrities. They <laughs> were like lobotomy salesmen going door to door and telling people about the amazing properties of a lobotomy. In 1938, Freeman and Watts decided to change the surgery up a little bit. Instead of burying holes at the top of the skull, they began to operate at the temples. Moniz's lucidomy tool that he used, the syringe full of ethanol, was not rigid enough for this procedure. Sometimes 
It would break off in the brain. That's a problem. <laughs> That's right? a bad problem. That's a problem. So instead, they were using pretty much what looked like a butter knife to go in and scrape people's brains. That's exactly what they used on Rosemary Kennedy. According to Kate Clifford, the quarter-inch-wide flexible spatula was inserted through the burr holes in her temples. Watts turned and scraped as he moved deeper into her brain. Rosemary was told to recite stories, verses, and even sing a song during the procedure. But after one slice too many, she became incoherent and she stopped talking. And the Rosemary, as they knew her, was totally gone. She could no longer walk or speak after the surgery and was institutionalized forever. And she pretty much disappeared from the Kennedy family's letters, their family photos. It was just like they tried to forget her. What they done. Right. But even when that happened, they Freeman just considered it a setback. And he just kept on going. And then eventually, one day he was going through his junk drawer in his kitchen, as we all have. And he found, da-da-da-da, an ice pick. And he was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think about this? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. When you grill hot dogs, you yeah. say, oh, this utensil is what I've been looking for. Yeah. When I work my job and I see a specific knife or a specific spoon, oh, this will do the job. You don't, without no clarity of mind, look in an ice pick and say, oh, this will do the job. This is what I want to stick in somebody's This is what I want to see. Brain? Right. At, at no point in human history should that ever been thought of. <laughs> well, here's why he really liked it. So it was sharp, but it wasn't too sharp. And it was j- just the right girth and length. The lusotomy tool that Moniz had invented had this habit of breaking, like we said. Then they went on to the butter knife. It required the pesky addition of an actual neurosurgeon. Well, they didn't want to have a neurosurgeon. They wanted to be able to take this show on the road and get in their little lobotomobile, which was a real thing, by the way, we're getting to, and hit the road and just do lobotomies everywhere, right? Here's how this began with the journey of the ice pick lobotomy. He finds the little ice pick in his junk drawer, and then he decides they're going to render the patients unconscious with electroshock therapy. So that's step number one. Shock them until they're unconscious. Here's how this works. Warning. Listener discretion is advised. Here's how this works. You're unconscious. They would access your frontal lobes by lifting your eyelid and inserting the ice pick right here in like the corner of your eye, through your eyeball, your orbital cavity. And then they would take a hammer and they would very gently tap it into place till it went through your very thin orbital bone above your eyeball. And then it would impale the brain tissue from there. Almost every time that he did this, which there's an actual picture in this book, he would pause and take a a photograph, which is why we have photographic evidence of this. He would take the ice pick once it was tapped in and he would swish it swish it swish it left right up and down just swish it along and then he would yank it out then he would go over to the other side and he would repeat the process lift the eyelid tap it in swish 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 it all around pull it out hopefully the patient would leave with bruised eyes but a much calmer more mellow demeanor (laughs) It's just so unbelievable to me. What <laughs> his, happened to his this former, His former partner, Watts, 
was pretty much furious because the new approach, he, he didn't even need him. Like, he just kind of left him and that was whatever. So now it was just Freeman and he could do as many lobotomies as he wanted to. He even took his miracle treatment on the road. He had a car called the Lobotomobile and he would take this Lobotomobile outfitted with all of his equipment and he would use it as he traveled. Oh, he also referred to his lobotomized patients as trophies. Pretty sure he was a serial killer, secretly. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't the only one that was doing it as the thing. It was a very popular treatment at the time. The doctors in the AMA were just appalled at this because this dude's not even a doctor and he's just out doing the lobotomies and stuff. He really believed that it would solve psychiatry's biggest problems. That it would help sort of relieve that number of institutionalized, mentally ill patients. Because it was a problem. But the lobotomy, (laughs) it, it was not the answer. So, poor, poor Rosemary Kennedy, who was lobotomized and just left in an institution to just rot. And I'm sure that she wasn't the only one. And the book notes, Howard Dolly wrote an autobiography entitled My Lobotomy. And he was a mentally sound, perfectly healthy 12-year-old boy whose stepmother just hated him and his imperfect behavior because he was a kid. You know, he was a 12-year-old kid. His stepmother hated him so bad that even though he had no mental illness... She convinced Freeman to perform the lobotomy anyway on him. A 12-year-old kid. I mean, obviously, if he wrote his autobiography, it didn't take all of his faculties away. Yeah. But I would like to read this book just to sort of right, I would understand. So, My Lobotomy by Howard Dulley. So, Friedman himself continued to perform lobotomies until his last procedure killed a woman in 1967 from cerebral hemorrhage. But the use of the lobotomy by then had begun dying a slow death because there was a a little pill that was invented called chlorpromazine, trade name Thorazine. Thorazine was the uh, first antipsychotic drug, and it was definitely more humane than shoving an ice pick through somebody's orbital cavity. So now neurosurgery today is, you know, obviously completely, completely different, leaps and bounds from the days of electroshock therapy and the lobotomy. Some surgical procedures do exist, but it's obviously nothing like it was. That would be called psychosurgery. No ice picks, though. Thankfully, those are oh, yeah. retired. So that's what we have to say about that on this one-hour-long episode oh, of History yeah. Told by Idiots. You guys deserve it for hanging with us and uh, coming note. with us through my... Lovely ordeals that did not involve ice picks in any note, way. On a side note, too, that I forgot to say about the radium, it was so such a big thing that they were using it for suppositories, too. Oh, gosh. I don't even want to think about that. Right. And, like, the radium was supposed to irradiate... Prostate. Yeah, and give you more energy. More sports. energy. Yeah, so sports athletes and stuff of that time were using the suppositories. Medical history is weird. It is right? weird. It is very it's weird. weird. The things that weird. we used to think were good for us. Wow. <laughs> what? We could 100% could do a second part of this episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this, and, this is very interesting. And again, book. we're going to go ahead and plug this book. Check it out. Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything by Lydia Kang, MD, and Nate Peterson. This is, um, it's just really, really good. 
from radium and radon to antimony to gold to tobacco and even eating clay. You know, I mean, you know, an interesting thing, and I'm uh, interesting thing, and I'm, I'm sorry that I have to say this, but you know, like when someone says you're blowing smoke up my ass, that was a medical treatment. That was like for tobacco. Like, yeah, that they was a literally shove tobacco up your hind end and they would blow smoke it. into it. Yeah, blow smoke up into your rectum. Don't ask me why, because I don't remember. But you know how you can find out if you check out this book. That, uh, that's where I saw that was in there. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for sticking with us through our extended break while I try to get my stuff together, get myself together. I did not have lobotomies, but I did have two very large catheter needles shoved into my spinal column. It's not you that needs to get so. your stuff together. This world needs to get <laughs> yeah. its stuff together. Thanks for sticking with us. So we appreciate each of you and uh, hope that you've enjoyed this really grim, weird, strange episode and we want to hear from you and want to know what it is that you that you want to hear in future episodes and if you have a topic please reach out to us and we're both tired so you know where to find us we're on everything so everything (laughs) instagram and facebook we're at history by idiots history by idiots dot buzzsprout.com that's correct thank you our patreon subscribers for being patient with us thank you for our patreon people who have been extremely patient with us we're gonna do something cool for you guys in the next little bit now that i'm back in the swing of things even though i did take a tumble out of our pool this evening so we'll (laughs) see we'll see how i feel but we appreciate each of you guys you're fantastic we love you with that being said you know how it goes Love history, love your libraries, and love yourself.